Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone, and thanks for joining us once again. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners with another one of our Edge podcasts. And today, we've got a very special guest, uh, Vivek Wadwa, who is a, uh, he's got, a, got an extraordinarily um, accomplished resume. We're going to be talking about a couple of his recent books, but he's a, he's a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School and Carnegie Mellon University's College of Engineering at Silicon Valley. Uh, he's author of Your Happiness Was Hacked, Why Tech is Winning the Battle to Control Your Brain and How to Fight Back, which we'll be talking about. Uh, he's also the author of The Driver in the Driverless Car, How Our Technology Choices Will Create the Future, uh, as well as The Immigrant Exodus, Why America is Losing the Global Race to Capture Entrepreneurial Talent, and of Innovating Women, The Changing Face of Technology. He's been a globally syndicated columnist for The Washington Post and held appointments at Duke University, Stanford Law School, Emory University, and, and Singularity University. Uh, so Professor Wadwa is based in Silicon Valley, researches exponential advancing technologies that are going to change the world in fields such as robotics, artificial intelligence, computing, synthetic biology, 3D printing, medicine, and, and nanomaterials, which are making it possible for small teams to do what was once only possible for governments and large corporations to do, which is to solve the grand challenges of uh, education, water, food, shelter, health, and security. So uh, in 2012, the U.S. government awarded Wadwa distinguished recognition as an outstanding American by choice for his commitment to this country and the common civic values that unite us as Americans as Americans, and he was also named one of the world's top 100 global thinkers by Foreign Policy magazine that year. In, uh, in, in, in June 2013, he was on Time magazine's list of Tech 40, one of 40 of the most influential minds of tech. And in September 2015, he was second on a list of 10 men worth emulating in the Financial Times. So needless to say, with that, with that introduction, uh, Vivek, I'm, I'm really uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that you made time to, uh, to speak with us today. No, it is uh, great to be talking to you. I'm a big fan of yours as well. Well, really appreciate that. So, what we're gonna, we'll, what we'll do is, is we'd like to dive, we'd like to talk about your your two most recent books. But I, but I think what would be helpful would be to to get a just a uh, sh share a bit of your of your background, what had brought you to technology ultimately, and and share a bit of the journey that's that's brought you to really to, to focus on on writing books that are you know that are that are very much topical and and uh, really a central thinking today. Sure. I started off as a technology executive. I founded two companies, took one public, then had a massive heart attack and said, oh, oh time to do something different. So I became an academic and I started researching everything from U.S. competitiveness, engineering education, to immigration, to the role of women in technology, to uh, um, you know uh, why uh, Silicon Valley has become the most innovative place on this planet. Long story, but eventually um, uh, I realized that the United States is in serious trouble, that it's falling behind in many areas. And I had written a lot, a lot about how China and India are going to eat uh, America's lunch, especially if we didn't get immigration uh, you know, sorted out. And this is beginning to happen. And I was also becoming very pessimistic about the world in general, about the fact that uh, we have overpopulation, shortages of energy, uh, I mean, you know, global warming, all of these things happening at the same time. 
you know, so, so if you read my writing, so I started writing also along the way. Um, if you read my writing from uh, the late 90s, I was getting pretty pessimistic, pretty concerned. And then if you read my writing from about four or five years ago, I was talking about how this is the most amazing period in human history when we can literally solve the grand challenges of humanity and have unlimited energy, you know, unlimited food, housing, you name it, that we could create the future of Star Trek. And now you see a, a hybrid Vivek Wadwai, someone who is really worried and excited at the same time, because I realize that the same technologies that can uplift humanity can also tear society apart. That I talk about the choice between Star Trek and Mad Max, the darkness, the dystopia, which is also possible. I mean, if you look at the United States, whether you are on the left or the right, whether you know, you're seeing extremism riding, rising, you're seeing both sides getting very, very, very angry. This is the beginning of Mad Max, right? <laughs> So at the same time, we have amazing advances. We're now looking at uh, cars taking over our roads that will drive themselves. We're actually looking at, you know, finally uh, having uh, flying cars, uh, you know, transport us. You know, all these amazing things happening at the same time as all the scary things happening. So now I'm in between. And this is what my two books are about. Driving the Driverless Car talks about what's possible and the choices we must make. And uh, uh, Your Happiness Was Hacked looks into one of these uh, you know, technologies, in particular social media and technology itself and how it's making us miserable at the personal level. So let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's that's great. And I think what, you know, what really comes across in your work is that you're, you know, you're very even handed and concerned about not being a uh, just a, a blind techno optimist. But 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 also, again, you you, you do have uh, you know, a sense of possibility that's that's not that's not, you know, that that doesn't put you into the, you know, the, the, the camp of of dystopians. I mean, I think your 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 passion comes across quite a bit so so I think what would be helpful would be to to, to chat a bit uh, you know really starting from first principles and uh, maybe you know for for some of the listeners that that don't have as much of a of a background in the exponent in, in exponential technologies could you could you talk about some of the the lens that you used in in driver in the driverless car um, you looked at several different areas of, of emerging technologies what's um, and there were a couple of we can get to a couple of the questions that you've asked but um, could, could you talk about what is what has been Special about the uh, the impact of exponential technologies and and the uh, the, the dimensions of, of exponential forces that that you know create different dynamics than than we may have seen historically. Absolutely. To start with, look in your hands. I bet you almost everyone has a smartphone in their hands, you know, or they've got it, you know, on their bodies basically. So they were all carrying these these smartphones. That device you have in your pocket has more computing power than, by my calculation, about 40 Cray supercomputers. Remember those Cray supercomputers that in the 70s had export controls on them? They used to cost between 17 and $20 million. You've got 40 of those in your hands right now. All right? And on top of that, you have sensors that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, would have cost hundreds of dollars and weighed a couple of hundred pounds just a few years ago. This is what you have in your hands, supercomputers and the most advanced sensors known to mankind. In fact, that device in your hand has more accurate GPS and accelerometer capabilities than what's in the U.S. nukes. I mean, remember those nuclear missiles we, you know, we gave us America an advantage, uh, you know, through the Cold War and so on? Well, what you have in your pocket is more precise, more accurate than those nukes have been. So this is, you know, what we take for granted. 
Now, what we don't realize is that that technology in your smartphone is now powering advances in every other field you can think of, starting with artificial intelligence, exponential, robotics, exponential, uh, synthetic biology, exponential. I mean, I can go uh, you know, through technology after technology after technology, but all of these now are on an exponential curve. Ray Kurzweil, the, the famous futurist, has a saying. What he says is that um, as any technology becomes information-based, it starts advancing exponentially. That is what is happening to technology after technology after technology. And you know, what's very relevant for your uh, listeners in particular is what does this mean for industry? What does this mean for business? These are business people we're talking to. What it means is that when you have multiple technologies converging, they disrupt entire industries. Every industry I look at is about to be disrupted. So the way you know, the investors, the financial planners, the way companies, uh, the way governments do their uh, forecasting is to look backwards. You draw a line 5, 10, 15 years back. And this is what you do also, my friend. You draw a line backwards. And then you extrapolate forward. So on a linear scale, it's pretty consistent and predictable. However, technology is not on a linear scale. It's on an exponential scale. So when you look backwards on an exponential curve at the inflection point, you see nothing. So therefore, you can't predict that way anyway. You can't do forecasting the way you've done it before. Because you know, advancing exponential technologies that converge disrupt entire industries. So every industry, whether it be uh, agriculture, whether it be medicine, whether it be transportation, you're going to see more change over the next decade than you've seen in the last hundred years. It's it's really uh, almost beyond comprehension the you know the the amount of the, you know, the the amount of disruption ahead of us, and I think you know many of us are uh, are, are struggling with this. I, I I find what's unique about your approach and is you know that you do you, you ask questions about that are uh, that you really apply a. Uh, a much more broad lens to the to the implications, and and I was just going to the highlight that you know you you've thought about how to apply questions to different technologies. One, does the technology have the potential to benefit everyone equally? Uh, second, you know what are the risks and rewards? And third, does the technology uh, strongly promote autonomy or dependence? Which has I mean each each one of these questions has incredibly deep implications, but would love to love to start with that as really as as the 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 foundational lens that that you were um, that really was the spark behind the driver and the driverless car, and talk through some of the uh, the, the implications as you see it for you know for, for certain technologies. And as we look at, at some that are foundational, I mean one one is is artificial intelligence, and and, and that's that's a uh, that's a technology and a topic that's um, that's that's certainly seen quite a lot of extreme uh, extreme views. And would love to get your thoughts on on you know just starting with AI as a uh, as, as you know, what the implications are. Sure, absolutely. So let's uh, you know, put a focus on AI and talk about what it means. What is AI? We've been hearing about AI since we were kids. I mean, we used to have, we had uh, professors at Carnegie Mellon predicting that soon, this is in 1958, that uh, you know, within a decade, computers will be as smart as human beings are. They'll be able to def defeat check, you know, uh, Jeopardy players. And we've been watching science fiction in which we had all of these humanoid robots and so on and so on since we were kids. Nothing happened. In fact, in the 90s, we thought that the Japan would win the race. We were terrified about the Japan becoming an AI superpower. 
nothing happened and imploded. In fact, it was what was called the the uh, AI winter. It was like the nuclear winter, except uh, there was a dark cast. There was a dark cloud that was uh, you know cast over AI, and we thought AI was dead. AI isn't dead. AI is now everywhere. Well, what is AI exactly? Let's be precise here because they're different. You know, when we talk about AI, we talk about the stuff out of science fiction, the craziness that Elon Musk has been warning about, Stephen Hawking has been warning about, and we talk about business purposes. What AI today is, is really quantitative analysis on steroids, Excel spreadsheets on steroids. It's the ability to analyze information using these supercomputers in a way that it, it's, they seem to act in, they seem, they seem to act intelligent. So, uh, you know, um, uh, accountants and, and all of us really have been using Excel, Excel for, for the last two decades or so. You give it uh, data and it analyzes it very fast and it helps your, your, your productivity. That's what AI is, except the difference is that AI remembers what you gave it. So it, it recognizes patterns. You, t you basically tell it patterns and it recognizes those patterns and then uh, it, comes up with a it comes up with a model with weightings, which lets it make determinations based on what you give it you know, uh, as to how to make your decisions. I'm, I'm simplifying a lot over here, but essentially it's, a, it's pattern recognition, supercomputing, and uh, Excel spreadsheets uh, all in one on steroids. That's what AI is today. So it has amazing applications in business. In every way you analyze information, you can be using AI to help you do it better. So it's great stuff. Now, when you combine, you know, I talked about before about converging technologies, about multiple technologies. When you combine AI with sensors and with battery technologies and, um, you know, and you go to the transportation field, you now have the ability to build self-driving cars. That's literally what the self-driving car is. This is why you have, you know, had Google and, and uh, Tesla and all these companies getting their cars out because they're gathering data. They're basically now doing the pattern recognition so that the car can seemingly drive itself. It's not driving itself. It's really using algorithms and, and, and you know, formulas to compute the best way of, of, of uh, navigating. That's what these things are doing. So you get self-driving cars. You get um, robotic. Um, uh, you, get, sorry, you get AI-based physicians soon in the next five or ten years. In almost every field of medicine, an AI tool will be able to analyze the information better than a human doctor can. And, and AI will be uh, better at uh, prescribing medications than almost any human being is. That's in the next five or 10 years, right? So I can you know, go through field after field after field, but AI is going to lead to amazing uh, uh, you know, capabilities and discoveries and enhance human beings' uh, decision-making capabilities. So this is AI. Now, the, where does it get crazy? Well, I talked about how computers are advancing exponentially. You know something, by 2023, your, that smartphone in your pocket will have the same computing power that your brain does. Now, I'm not saying your brain to, you know, to point out you're smart or you're dumb. I'm just saying that, that, that of a human brain. <laughs> the same computing power as a human brain is what these devices will have. A year and a half later, it'll be twice as smart, four times as smart, 16 times as smart. By 2050, if these advances continue, that device will have the same computing power as every human, human being on this planet. This, so that the exponential advance continues. So now you add to that to AI. You have these supercomputers that are more computationally powerful than, and then, uh, you know, a thousand human beings. You get craziness. This is where the fear factor comes in. That um, the people believe that we may be able to create new algorithms that are able to make their own decisions and that exceed capabilities of the human beings in every way. And now we have runaway superintelligence. <laughs> so, so now coming back to the three questions we were talking about. Well, uh, is AI good or bad? I mean, does it have the potential to benefit everyone equally? Uh, when you look at self-driving cars, 
Absolutely, because right now you have people who are disabled, who are partially blind. You have old people. You have poor people um, who can't, uh, you know, get from point A to point B because um, they don't have the ability to see or or do, or they can't afford the cars or whatever. They don't have transportation. With self-driving cars, with we can talk about this separately. Electric self-driving cars, the cost of transportation will drop dramatically to the point that everyone can afford it. Uh, when you have these um, uh, AI apps on your smartphone. You know, smartphones can be bought for twenty or thirty dollars in the developing world now. In India and China, for twenty or thirty bucks, you can buy something that was better than the iPhone three and the iPhone four were. Mm. So now imagine adding, having an, on it apps that can monitor you to you twenty four seven. That that are your doctor, that are your coach, that are your advisor. And guess what? It won't just be us rich people who have it. It'll be the poorest of the poor who have that. So does AI have the potential to benefit everyone equally? You bet it does, because it runs on computers that are becoming dirt cheap, and everyone benefits from it. Well, the second question is: Go ahead, please. Okay. No, no, I was, I was, uh, I was, I, I didn't want to inter interrupt you. One, I think we were coming back to risks and uh, risk, risk yes. and rewards. Yeah, that's the next question. Do the rewards outweigh the risks? Well, for the moment, they do, for sure. I mean, uh, being able to make better decision making. But then move forward five or ten years. You know, I talked about how uh, these AI systems learn. Imagine if you're, uh, you know, in the insurance industry, you're an actuarial who analyzes uh, risk. Imagine now training up an AI, and an AI learning from every other actuarial in the company. So now that AI is better than a human being is is at at calculating risk. In addition to that, that uh, AI actuarial has information about climate change, about weather data. It has information about uh, uh, economic uh, patterns. It has information about global wars and so on. So that that, that uh, AI is better than any human being in uh, Northwest Mutual or uh, AI, you know, AIG a decade from now. I mean, just imagine every large insurance company, you have an AI that's better than every human um, uh, uh, that does risk analysis. What happens to the human beings? They become unemployed. Mm -hmm. What happens now when we become dependent on these AIs? That becomes risky. So now you have an AI making life or death decisions when you know the human, the uh, AI doctors. You have uh, an AI making decisions about uh, what's risky and what's not risky, who to give loans to. Uh, then you have AI taking away jobs of, in almost every other field. You're talking about the elimination of vast majority of jobs that currently are done by uh, by human beings in about 15 years or so. That could lead to dystopia. So, are the rewards out? Do the rewards outweigh the risks? Frankly, I don't know. And then you talk about the runaway superintelligence that uh, that Musk and Hawking and even Gates have alluded to. Now you've got the craziness. You you've got the stuff out of science fiction that the the horror movies we saw. That could be 20, 30 years away. So, again, uh, do the rewards outweigh the risks? You tell me. Yeah, I think right now it's it's certainly an open debate, and and you've got the uh, these Asilomar principles at least to uh, guide development around an ethical uh, an ethical foundation, which is uh, certainly a start. Uh, I thought what was you know by applying, I mean it, it really is. Uh, uh, 
you know, we, we are on the precipice of some pretty foundational change. And I thought what was interesting is, is you had some different takes on uh, the, really the, the kind of net benefits versus risks of, of different technologies. And, and driverless cars and, and energy were two where you were uh, very, very uh, optimistic. Could you share some of your thoughts about the, um, you know, how, how the you know, driverless electric vehicles and, and uh, the rise of solar have uh, have great potential ahead of us. Yeah, let's talk about energy because uh, this is something people don't seem to realize that um, you know you, we're obsessed with the petroleum economy with fossil fuels, and you know um, investment firms look at, are always uh, speculating on the price of oil and the impact on the economy. What we seem to miss is the exponential advances in wind and solar in particular. The cost of solar has dropped about 99% over the past 30 or 40 years, literally 99%. But at the rate at which solar is advancing, uh, we're only about six doublings away. Six doublings means about a dozen years away, 12 years away from um, being in an era of unlimited, clean, and almost free energy. Now, what did I just say? It sounds bizarre to people. Free energy, ha, 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 this guy's an idiot. No, this guy is not an idiot. The cost of solar has been dropping at such a fast pace. Before, it used to be, you know, 10 or 12 percent, uh, 10 or 12 percent every year. I'm talking about solar panels and so on. Now, uh, the levelized cost of energy has been dropping 15, 18 percent, 20 percent for the last, you know, four or five years, and it seems to be accelerating. Uh, the, you know, if you look at uh, the cost of uh, uh, grids, uh, of some some of these new projects that are being uh, installed, the mega uh, uh, projects. The prices are ridiculously low. People that could never imagine that the price could drop so low. So, again, open your mind now and think exponential. But the fact is that this exponential, these exponential technologies will continue. Swanson's law, that with every doubling in uh, installations, the price drops 20%. And with the price drop of 20%, the installations double. So this is the, the, um, the curve that solar is on. So a decade from now, you're talking about be having the ability to generate almost all of the Earth's energy needs through solar and the price of it being dirt cheap. Now, you know, I wrote a piece of the Washington Post uh, which said exactly that in 2014, and I was heavily criticized by the energy industry because I predicted that the utilities would start going bankrupt and they would do everything they could to stop it. And their argument was the sun doesn't shine when it's not sunny, the wind doesn't blow when it's not windy. Duh, I know that. The cost of battery storage is also dropping exponentially. You know, we were, we, uh, uh, we've had short sellers having a field day with Tesla because to start with, uh, when the Roadster came out, we were talking about seven, eight hundred dollars a kilowatt hour for storage. Now, by all indications, uh, Tesla is down to about a hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. Maybe it's 140 dollars a kilowatt hour, but it's within that range. It could go down to 70, 80 over the next five years or so. That is a transformational thing because it's not only Tesla that's doing gigafactories. You have them coming up all over the world now. In fact, China may lead the world in gigafactories within the next five years or so and make the U.S. capabilities look minuscule, which means that we've lost control of it. Even if Tesla goes bankrupt, which I don't believe it will, but it, uh, the fact is that there will be uh, you know, dozen, two dozen, a hundred other uh, companies that are developing, uh, uh, you know, gigafactory and these technologies and the price of batteries will drop exponentially. So now move to 2025. 2025, what I'm talking about seven, eight years, uh, seven years from now, right? 2025, it should be that we can build self-driving electric cars for about $15,000 that go about 100 miles. That, I'm not exaggerating over here. So in the developing world, in India and China in particular, 100 kilometers is more than enough for almost all the driving that they need. Those cars should cost about five or $7,000.
it's very possible that uh, both countries, starting with China, ban um, uh, uh, internal combustion engines by 2025, 2026, 2027. At that time frame, they essentially ban them. And that lights a fire under the U.S. industry. And suddenly we're, we're now moving to an all-electric uh, industry as well. So by 2025, if we now start having electric cars uh, being the only cars that are produced, it's going to wreak havoc on the transportation industry worldwide. And when they're self-driving, which they surely will be, that, you know, uh, Tesla still crashing, they're still fumbling and so on. But, but again, think exponential. Don't think like the, don't think linearly. Think exponential that, uh, you know, two or three doublings away and voila, you have cars that can, you know, do 98% of uh, the driving we do without uh, human supervision. So now you have, uh, you know, you already have carpool lanes for, uh, for people with two, two or more uh, uh, drivers. Imagine those carpool lanes being replaced by self-driving car lanes. And imagine entire highways being replaced by self-driving cars in the late 2020s. So this is an amazing future we're talking about because it'll be dirt cheap. It'll be affordable. Everyone can get to where they have to be. Distance will no longer, longer be a barrier. We don't have to worry about accidents because these cars won't crash into each other. We can now live outside cities. Uh, with the cost of energy being so low, we will start converting entire neighborhoods and then entire townships into clean energy, uh, uh, you know, area, uh, clean energy only areas in the late 2020s, far uh, faster than anyone ever imagined. It's really remarkable how how fast these changes can happen too, and I and I think Vivek, when you were writing about this in 2014, as as you look at the uh, at the cost curves and and people like Ramez Nam and 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 Tony Seba track these pretty closely, it, it's it's really remarkable how the how the the actual cost has has tracked the forecast just uh, to the T, if not if not even even more uh, more impressive uh, declines in in cost. It's, it's, Ed Ramez is a good friend of mine, okay, and I've been beating him up for being too conservative. Huh. He's afraid of going out on a limb and being as bold as I am and saying we're talking to about 100% by 2030. I mean, that's what I wrote in the Washington Post. I mean, <laughs> he, he, he didn't yell at me, I mean, because I, I ran it by him. But he says, Vic, you're, you're very bold in your, in your forecast. So, like I said, but when you look at his predictions, he has to keep revising them. And yeah. said, uh, Bloomberg <laughs> New Energy Finance, they, they are the optimists here. They have to keep revising their forecast. They dare not say what I'm saying, yeah. which, is, yeah. which is so obvious to me. No, it's 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 amazing, and, and and I think anybody that looks at the at the data and uh, take, takes a good hard look at it, you know, ha, has to be convinced that that this is this is uh, this is going to become way bigger than it's going to come bigger than I think anybody uh, could have even conceived if just a few years ago. Look um, at all the forecasts that these people have been making, and you'll find that they were wrong because they were too conservative. Uh -huh. They 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 missed the boat. That things happen faster than expected. <laughs> Yeah, I think the only the, 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 some of the challenges are just you know the big the bigger challenges are, are moving people and, and government and education of course anything that's got a human component to it is 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 always a bit more complex to uh, that's a Mad Max part of it that's why I worry yeah because technology is advancing exponentially humanity is not and this is why I keep coming back to my fears that we're not ready for all this technology it's happening faster than we understand because even the experts I mean uh, you know we mentioned Ramez and uh, Tony and so on uh, and Bloomberg New Energy Finance even these experts don't seem to be able to uh, you know or uh, they, they probably can't see it but they don't seem to be able to call out the obvious that hey this is going to uh, happen five seven years ten years twenty years faster than anyone expects and we need to be ready for it, but it's it's that's, we're not. 
Yeah, no doubt. There. Um, before we move on to your new to your newer book, um, I, I did want to ask about a, a, a couple of the areas in or in, in technology where I, I think your uh, you know your forecast is forecast is maybe a bit more mixed, and and one is is per, uh, particularly around the, uh, the you know the convergence of of you know, computer science and genetics, and and I, I know uh, you would have done some writing around the, the CRISPR editing technology, but I. Love to get your thoughts on, uh, you know, some of the some of the uh, advantages, and then and then some of the risks when we start applying uh, information technology to to our own biology. Yeah, CRISPR is absolutely um, absolutely amazing. The fact you can edit human life itself, the fact you can edit plants, the fact that you can now uh, engineer new organisms, the fact that we can accelerate the progress and create uh, you know plants that grow in the desert, the fa- fact that we can edit our disease. All of these things are happening right now. That uh, major experiments going on worldwide to to do all of this thing. We're talking about genetic engineering, uh, literally out of science fiction. This is what CRISPR has made possible, which is, which is all wonderful, amazing, great stuff. However, um, um, you know, the, the dark side of it is that we could engineer killer viruses. We could create, um, uh, you know, Bill Gates is talking about editing mosquitoes. He, this is one of his pet projects to edit out malaria. We're talking about uh, uh, gene drives. Um, uh, imagine now editing um, species and, in, and having the wrong effect and creating monsters out of it. And then uh, human beings. I mean, a decade from now, 15 years from now, uh, it's very likely that we've developed the ability to edit embryos. So children before they're born to edit out disease and to include extra few extra features. Mm. But what if you could, you could add IQ? I mean, uh, it, right now, uh, there are different, uh, a lot of research being done on this. It seems like it's a very complex problem. There's no, you know, one gene for IQ. There could be hundreds of genes. But with the supercomputers, with supercomputers and with gene editing, imagine if you could edit those hundreds of genes simultaneously, thousands of genes simultaneously, and now add IQ points. So the choice you have is, hey, you're about to have a granddaughter or you're about to have a daughter. Um, uh, you know, and and um, you, or your son. I mean, and you, and you can, by the way, enhance the IQ of the child. Do you want 10, 10 extra IQ points, 20 IQ points, 50 IQ points? Mm-hmm. The question is, where do you draw the line? When do you now um, go from creating humans to creating monsters? This is all in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited and I'm terrified at the same time. I'm more terrified about CRISPR than anything else because America has lost control of this. The leading, uh, the country that's leading the research in CRISPR is China. They're experimenting with monkeys, with beagles, with human beings, with everything under the sun, because China is determined to get ahead at all costs in science. Uh, it doesn't want to lose this race. And its moral values, its ethical values are different than ours are. So they consider it fair game to, uh, to edit uh, uh, you know, genes on this scale. So what are we going to see in the next five or ten years? Your guess is as good as mine. So yeah. I'm, I'm scared of this technology. Yeah, it's 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 amazing because there is this uh, incredible da- downside of risk to this technology that's um, that has you know so much promise to uh, extend our lifespans and and address you know diseases and 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 really Im- improve health for for you know for so many billions of people around the world. The you know the the the, the challenge here is I, I guess the I always like to say you know what the the question is what could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. You know, this is this is what driving the driverless car gets into great detail on. You know, a whole range of technologies and the implications. It's written from the human side. It's written so that grandma can read it as well as uh, junior. It's written so that anyone and everyone can read the book and understand it. It doesn't get technical at all. 
and it explains these things so that you understand the implications and we can come together as humanity and figure out how to drive these technologies in the right direction and build Star Trek in the next 30 or 40 years. Star Trek 30 or 40 years from now is what is possible. Not 300 years as what you saw on, on the TV series. I'm talking about 30 or 40 years now when we get into this era of amazing things. That is possible. The one thing that's different about Star Trek is that, that in the series, you didn't have people looking at their communicators all the time. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it kind of brings me to the to, to hey, hey, question. On that point, on that point you know, uh, the communicators we have are more advanced than what Captain Kirk had. His communicator didn't do emails. It didn't play music. It, it, it didn't. It was a flip uh, phone. It was, it was a flip phone. Exactly. What we have is more advanced than what they had. If they had, uh, you know, the, the smartphones, the iPhones, I'm sure you would have had them looking at it, uh, you know, 24/7 as well, just like we do. Well, it would be it would be almost the uh, the, the the environment in, in Wally of of the people sitting around in the in the spaceship uh, drinking giant sodas. I, I think that's, that's the risk. But the, which you know that does lead to a, to the, the the bigger question. I think behind your your newer book, um, or your your you just came out last month, uh, your happiness was. Act, why tech is winning the battle to control your brain and how to fight back, um, how technology is changing us as, as humans. And I'd, I'd love to get a, uh, a bit of a sense of, of you know, what, what led you to, to, uh, to write the book and you know, what, what, you know, what, what did you see as this, uh, you know, as, as, as this major, uh, trying to, trying to you know, how, how did you go about looking to define the, the, the problem? Yeah, you know, uh, you can call Happiness Was Hacked the first sequel from uh, <laughs> Driving the Driverless Car because in Driving the Driverless Car, I speculated on the fact that we could create the darkness, the fact that same technologies that could be used for good could be used for evil. If you go back to the beginning of time, the first technology was fire. Fire could be used to keep us warm, to cook food, or to burn down houses and to kill. That's how it's been with every technology since then. So in particular, if you look at social media now, if you look at uh, uh, you know, our smartphones, if you look at our TV sets, everything with uh, uh, you know, uh, these sensors and computing and connectivity features, you'll find that they're making us addicted. That the tech industry figured out that they could uh, give us everything for free and then learn everything they could about us to market us information. This is what Facebook and Google are doing. You've seen the revelations about Cambridge Analytica. That's the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. The same you know, technologies that, that should have been bringing humanity together, should have been making the world a better place, social media, are now being used to rip apart societies. They're being used to, to adversely uh, uh, impact our thinking, to give us misinformation, to make us angry, to make us jealous. And it's all for sale. So these companies, the tech companies that I love, I also hate because they've lost their souls. They're so obsessed with making money. They're so obsessed with using these technologies to monetize this information that they've lost their moral compass. They're now being used to uh, make, us, make us miserable. Almost every data point you look at shows that instead of becoming happier, we're becoming more miserable than ever. You know, teen suicide rates are up, depression, anxiety, uh, you know, people are sleeping less than ever. Uh, almost every data point you look at says something has gone wrong over the last 10 or 15 years. That 
the technologies that should have been bringing us together are are doing us a lot of damage now. And that's what this book is about. The book isn't negative. I mean, you know, I have to explain all of these things to the readers so that they understand what's going on here. It's like, you know, being addicted to alcohol or to drugs. You have to understand what those things do, do to you and what it is. And then the question is, how do you um, uh, live a more balanced life? I mean, alcohol in moderation is, is good. In California and many other states now, they're legalizing marijuana. So in moderation, you can get away with a lot. I mean, it's, it's okay. Um, it, with technology, you know, you have to have it. We can't run away from technology, but it's overuse is what's doing all this damage. And that's what we have to, uh, you know, rein in. We have to control it. We have to limit the amount of time uh, we uh, spend on social media, the, the number of times we check our smartphones. We have to limit uh, the number of reruns we watch on Netflix. Uh, but what the book does is explain all of these and, and walks you through the choices we must make and, and how we can uh, get a grasp on these things and, and live a, you know, a better uh, technology life. I thought it was helpful that you provided a, uh, an overview of some of the, the aspects of technology that become so addictive. The uh, um, professor B.J. Fogg at, at Stanford, who was teaching a class on persuasive technologies, and, and uh, Nir Eyal, who, who wrote the book Hooked. Um, it, I mean, I think what many people don't necessarily realize is that these, uh, you know, these, these red notification buttons and, and, and other uh, design characteristics of, of social media are absolutely engineered to, you know, to manipulate people. In fact, uh, you know, the fact that we're checking our emails, uh, you know, 100 times every hour is a technique that was developed by uh, a, a psychologist, B.F. Skinner, in the late 1930s, early 1940s. What he did was that he put rats into a cage and uh, put a lever there that they could uh, hit to get uh, a pellet of food. What he found was he could train the rats and also pigeons to hit the lever to get fed. It was great that you could train these, um, these creatures. But then what he uh, did was he changed the experiment. He gave them food only some of the time. And sometimes he gave them you know, twice as much food or three times as much food. What he found was that the pigeons in particular went crazy. They couldn't stop pecking. They were always afraid that they wouldn't get another, uh, you know, uh, another pest, uh, thing, uh, another, sorry, another um, uh, pellet of food. So they kept pecking and they became obese. That's how we are. When we check our smartphones, we, the reward is an email. Aha, you got an email. Or the reward is a like on Facebook. The re reward is a share on Twitter or Instagram. These are the rewards. And this is why we keep checking it over and over again because we want those awards. We are essentially the rats in the cage over here. What I thought was really interesting as well in the book is how you, uh, you, you you've looked at the impact of technology on on different aspects of our society. One is one is love, which is this this idea that uh, you know, living in the in the era of, of of Tinder and other online dating apps, of course, this is you know it, it's it's. This is kind of the way people meet each other these days, but it it really has fundamentally changed, uh, a, you know, a societal relationship around love. Yeah, you know, you look at love. I mean, we essentially it started off with uh, dating websites. So you had, um, you know, Match.com, any Harmony, and so on, and they were pretty good because they allowed you to uh, to um, uh, get a lot of information about people, and then uh, you could start up a chat, and they used to be, you know, quite good. But now you have the Tinder generation. I'll bet you most of the people on this uh, call haven't used Tinder, even though you know, they're probably, you know, it's the young that are using it more than the old are. In Tinder, it's really a swipe, swipe right or swipe left. It's transactional. 
and what's more, Tinder wants you to keep coming back for more. So just like Facebook and uh, and Google and all of these companies, they want people coming back to their technology day in and day out. So they have worked to engineer love so that it's a transaction. That it's literally one night stands. That you swipe right and uh, you know if you get lucky, you get laid, <laughs> and then you come back for another one. So yeah. so the entire system is engineered to keep you coming back for more. So what's happened is that love has become transactional because these companies want to keep us coming back to their apps so they can they can keep making more money that's the sad thing over here yeah the the it's also impacted our ability to to concentrate and this is um the i mean nick nick carr had written the shallows uh about a decade ago talking about this um this lack of ability to concentrate but uh yeah but you but you you talked about you talk quite about this uh quite a bit about how uh it, it this these technologies are are uh you know creating this constant series of interruptions that are impacting the ability of people to focus Exactly. When you, every time you get an email and you get distracted from what you were doing, it takes a few minutes to get your, your, your mind back into gear and to continue with what you're doing. But the way it works at work now is the companies have Slack, for example, and Slack has desktop notifications. So you keep getting messages, you know, 100 times an hour and you keep getting distracted by them. And, and these companies want you to keep being notified and, and stopping what you're doing and responding to it. So we can't focus anymore. We can't uh, turn off anymore. So this is one of the recommendations I made in the book was that uh, that maybe we turn off uh, companies maybe want to make it um, emails being delivered every hour or so we turn off these desktop notifications it'll increase productivity now that's a, that's a that's a great um Great point, and and then of course the way we look at at how even even a, you know the social lives of kids are, are being uh, impacted. Um, I mean, how do you how do you see the uh, uh, the way to uh, combat the, 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 essentially this um, this the, the, how technology is is shaping uh, and and undermining in a way uh, you know an entire generation is relating to each other. Yeah, and you know, you can't talk at the generational level. Really, it's a personal thing that everyone has their own uh, way of using technology. It's really a very, very personal thing. And what I tried to do in the book was to teach people the basics about it so they can make their own uh, prescriptions. It's not like a diet that you eat less calories, you lose weight. It's really everyone has different needs, everyone has different relationships. So you've got to understand what's going on here and then reflect and try different things out to see what leads to that balance. There's no one size fits all here, one easy answer and you got it. It's, you have to understand and do what's right for you and your family. Do you have some uh, some some tips or, or thoughts about how uh, how people can evaluate if they have uh, an issue with with technology and and uh, you know what are what are some what are what are some steps that, that we can take to um, to ensure that our, that we're less impacted in a negative way? You know, in the book, uh, I, I created a ch- we created a ch- Alex Salko and I created a checklist. Uh, it's, you know, six things to do. I mean, uh, essentially, what you do is you write down each app that you use, each technology you use. And then you, um, um, uh, you know, go through it and say, okay, will I be better off if I don't use it at all? Will I be better off using it, uh, you know, less often? Will it make the people around me better off, and so on? You have to essentially have to go through each technology and evaluate how you're using it and why you're using it, and seeing the effects on you and the people around you, and then make a decision as to do you really need to have Facebook on your smartphone? Do you really need to have Twitter on your smartphone? Do you need to be checking emails as often as you do? 
and and, and then you know advice such as leave the um, uh, smartphone um, off after nine o'clock, put it on, do not disturb, you know things like that. So we go through a whole range of things. And I said, I don't want to do one prescription and say, here's what you do. I want people to read the book, understand the issues, and then to personalize. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's you know that's great advice, and to and uh, I think the um, the readers uh, will be well. Uh, it'll be well worth the time to uh, read. Of course, I was I was actually reading uh, reading the book partly on my phone. Uh, <laughs> I was traveling, which is amazingly convenient, right? There, that's the advantage. But on the other hand, you're just, uh, you know, we are, we're, all, we're all constantly fighting this, and and I think, yeah, certainly when it, when it comes back to work and, and industry and and really applying all of these amazing uh, forces of, of 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 change that are ahead of us, um, let's. I, I think we all kind of want to make sure that that our we're not our faces aren't stuck in our phones we can actually look up and kind of see what's see what's actually going on so right yeah so i think that just you know the last question that i that i'd ask is is um uh just just a a question sort of broader uh broader recommendations um you know we'll definitely include the uh the links to your books in in the show notes but are you know are there are there any um are, are there any books or or other resources that you find particularly inspiring that uh um that 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 you would recommend to people if they're they're trying to get a bit smarter about uh what's what's coming up ahead there's so many sources, you know, books, um, even driving the driverless car, okay? Um, it, 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 until the last moment, it was published uh, last year, until the last second, I had to keep updating it because things kept changing. The, um, you know, the, uh, what you should do is read the books to understand the bigger uh, trends, but then go online and, and read up uh, on what's happening there. Today, even the mainstream newspapers, the New York Times, Washington Post, had technology sections that give you a broad range of technologies. Then there's specialized uh, publications, everything from Wired, uh, uh, you know, MIT Technology Review. Uh, I mean, there's so many different sources of information. Yeah. Figure out the things you're interested in. Go to the uh, the latest publications. Do um, email uh, <laughs> email alerts. You know the daily uh, the things that they send you. Scan through them and keep up to date on it because everything changes so fast. So books aren't the source of information anymore. Things are moving much too fast to to you know wait for a book to come out and read it. Yeah. It, well, and and your and your books are are very well annotated too. So there there's uh, it is that's the we 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 have an ascent uh, effectively it's an embarrassment of of riches of information that we all exactly. benefit from. So, well listen, this is great Vivek. I I uh I I'm always uh inspired and and um and educated and and uh you know really um grateful you know to to uh to he to hear your thoughts on 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 so many topics and um would you know would like to would like to thank you again for taking the time we're gonna we'll include the links to uh to your to your most recent books as well as as your prior books as well in our show notes uh and uh, again this is ed mcguire of uh insights partner and momenta partners uh and i and i want to thank you vivek for taking the time all right my friend thank you Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary 
We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.